why we're here and uh, what has happened in terms of a rebellion and what's going to happen with all of that. And I wish to continue along the same lines with a, a more positive uh, view. And this will have to do beginning in John 10, uh, because what we have been called here to do as a preparation crew for a refuge, for a gathering of God's people, for specific purposes, uh, will be covered today as well along with this. Because we need to know and we need to understand and remember why we're here. Now in the book of John, I won't go turn back to these, but in the book of John, John uses the holy days to help explain who Christ is. In John uh, 6, I believe it is, uh, he talks about Christ being there. No, it's 7. Uh, well, where is it? But I was looking for the last great day here. Maybe it was further on. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, he said he spoke on the last great day, and he says, If any man has need or want, that they are to come to him. So the message he was getting across was that the last great day has to do with salvation, ultimately, in the great white throne judgment for the peoples who've lived from Adam on down through the millennium and who've not had their opportunity. And then he talks, uh, I think that's in 6 actually, then when he gets to 7, uh, he talks, well that is the last great day, 7, 10, uh, I'm getting them all mixed up, John 6, he talks about the Passover, <laughs> uh, Passover was where he talked about how he was the bread of life and how the Passover has to do him and with him, and therefore he is the opportunity for salvation uh, that comes through his death and resurrection and through his life and the forgiveness of our sins. Then in 7, he again uses the feast and uses the last great day when Christ was there uh, to describe the time when those people will have opportunity at salvation. Then we come to chapter 10, which is the object for today, or at least the starting point. Uh, and he says that if you try to get into God, to salvation, into the sheepfold, uh, in any way other than through him, or through the shepherd of the sheep, uh, then you're a thief and a robber. Uh, verse 2, he that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And the sheep hear his voice, they know him, and they come to him. Now, he was speaking to the Jews here, and they didn't hear his voice, and they didn't come to him, except with sticks and stones. But they certainly didn't come to Christ for salvation, as most of them don't even to this day. Uh, the sheep follow him, they know his voice, verse 4. A stranger they won't follow, they'll flee from, they'll recognize that this is not the true gospel, don't allow it in your house, nor bid it Godspeed, as John put it in First, uh, Second, and Third John, was where he mentioned that type of thing. Says he's the door of the sheep in verse seven. Mentions it again in verse nine. Uh, he says in verse ten, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy, and, but he had come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. 
Now, Satan, of course, is there always to turn people from Christ and to set up a false Christ, an antichrist, which is going to happen again here very shortly. Someone is going to appear who will seem to have the answers, and people will think that's the voice, and they will follow it. And everyone except a few who understand the truth will follow it. Well, he said he wasn't a hireling. He didn't flee. He took care of the sheep. Uh, he's the good shepherd, verse 14. I know my sheep and am known of mine. So his true sheep, he will know, and they will know him. Now, we have to obey him in order for him to know us. He says if we don't follow what he says, he'll say, I don't know you. If we don't do what he did, we don't take care of him, that is, by taking care of each other. As the Father knows me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. So he died for us. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Now he had been speaking at this point to physical Israel through these leaders of the Jews. And uh, that fold uh, was not his focus. He said, I have sheep of another fold. Them also I must bring. So he's going to deal with... Uh, his church, which he was about to build, and the apostles, and those whom he called, who would be his true sheep, who would be offered salvation under the new covenant. These Jews will not be offered salvation until the great white throne judgment, which was mentioned back in John 7. So, Yes, Israel will be saved, Romans 11:26, but not until the millennium and great white throne judgment. He's going to deal with the bride of Christ and that fold, the 144,000, before them. So he's setting that up here. He says, they'll hear my voice. There'll be one fold and one shepherd. And it's going to come back to that, as I think we're going to see before the day is over where the church will no longer be scattered all over, at least that which he is working through, that which he regathers. The rest will be in tribulation, seeking repentance, and die there. Some will repent, as Zechariah shows. He says, Therefore my Father loves me, in verse 17, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. And we do that with baptism. We commit by laying down our life, and symbolically... Uh, going through a watery grave, a drowning. And then we take it back as we come out of the water and are given the Holy Spirit by the laying on of hands, and then we have our life again. It's a different life. It's another life. It's a more meaningful life. It's something that has purpose. And he says, no man takes it from me. And he tells us, with ours, not to let any man take our crown. Don't let anybody take it from you. But be sure you take care of it. Uh, verse 19, there was a division, therefore, again among the Jews for these sayings. What's he talking about? Well, I thought he made it fairly clear who he was. But they weren't ready to accept that, and they did not know that he was about to start the New Testament church. So they were not accepting him by any means. So what is he talking about? They, they had different opinions, a division. Many of them said, he has a devil and is mad. Why are you, why are you even listening to him? This guy's demon-possessed. 
Others said, these are not the words of him that has a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? So they had seen miracles, but they still couldn't put it all together as to who he was. Now this was leading up to the Feast of the Dedication, and he mentions this context again in verse 26 as we get down there, showing that uh, these questions they had asked him in his explanation up until verse 22 were part of the same context, the same time. So then in verse 22, John tells when this conversation occurred and its continuation. It was at Jerusalem, the Feast of the Dedication, and it was winter. So uh, the Feast of the Dedication comes in the wintertime. Now, I gave a sermon some weeks back uh, indicating that since this is part of the Bible and has nothing to do with Christmas, but has to do with uh, Antiochus Epiphany's uh, profaning the temple, and three years later Judas Maccabeus uh, cleansing it and making it pure again, and the Jews from that time forward kept the feast of dedication or purification or of renewal. All those words can be used in terms of the temple being renewed and reestablished, a time of restitution. And we are looking forward to a restitution of all things, as we'll see in a moment. So the Feast of Dedication has very deep meaning for us today, not just for a historical event in 165 B.C. And Christ was there at the temple on the Feast of the Dedication. And Emmanuel walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. So he could have been somewhere else, but for some reason he was at the temple at the Feast of Dedication. Now, he set the example that I should follow in his steps. <laughs> and if that's what he chose to do, and it was important for to him to be there, then it must be important for me to do. Uh, I didn't notice and I didn't comment on uh, one thing that apparently was supposed to have happened when the temple was cleansed in 165 B.C., And that is that when they got the temple all cleansed and purified and went through all the rituals that are needed in order to to do it, as God would have had it done, they were going to light uh, the candelabra. And there was only enough oil for one day. And they says, well, what are we going to do? And they sent for more oil. And this is a story that is told in the, the book of Maccabees about that time. It's not in Scripture, but it's part of uh, the history of the Jews and what they say happened, and perhaps it did. But they only had oil for one day, purified oil that they could use for that purpose in the temple. So they sent for more oil, but they says, what's going to happen here? It'll go out in a day. But apparently, miraculously, that oil, which was sufficient for one day, burned for eight days. That is their history of what they say happened and is in the book of Maccabees. And by then the holy purified oil had arrived and they could keep uh, the lamp burning. So Feast of Lights takes on a little more meaning when you understand that uh, there may have been an absolute miracle of God there involved, 
in keeping uh, the fire going for eight days. And the Feast of Dedication then covers the time of that miracle, eight days. Because nothing else says how long it would last. Anyway, uh, I determined that I'm going to keep it and preached it from here to indicate that this is something I think the church should do. Anyway, he was walking in Solomon's porch, and I want to shed some more light today on the Feast of Dedication and what it means and what it portends for the future and for you and me and for the Church of God, because that is important. I'm going to entitle this, and I'll even give you the title ahead of time, uh, which I don't usually do, and the, the title is, Who is Christ? Show us plainly. Now let's go on, and I'll show you why I titled this that. So he was walking in Solomon's porch, verse 24, Then came the Jews round about him and said to him, How long do you make us to doubt? In other words, you just explained to us about the shepherd and the sheep, and we didn't get it. How long do you make us doubt? If you be the Christ, tell us plainly. Make it so clear that even we can understand, if you put it in that context. Now, they thought they were pretty smart. They didn't think they had the problem. They thought he did. But as usual, it's usually us that have the problem. Always, it is not Christ. If you be the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, this was at the Feast of the Dedication. Emmanuel answered them, I told you, and you believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. I just told you I have sheep, but you're not some of them. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So he really repeats what he just had just told them. And they still hadn't gotten it, didn't understand, or perhaps rebelliously wouldn't understand. And I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Now is that pretty plain? Who can give eternal life? Only Christ from the Father. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. How plain do you get? What was their reaction? Then the Jews took up stones, <laughs> stones again to stone him. Tell us plainly. Okay, so I'll tell you plainly. Now what are you going to do? We're going to stone you to death. We're not going to believe you. We're not going to follow you. We're not going to accept that you're the Christ that can give eternal life. We're, we're expecting a conquering hero to come, not some baby that grows up in Nazareth. So Emmanuel answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father, for which of those works do you stone me? Now I find this is interesting. He came, he did miracles, he did great works, he helped here, there, and everywhere, and they didn't get it. Wouldn't get it. 
Now keep that in mind as we fast forward through this sermon. The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we don't stone you, but for blasphemy, because at you being a man, make yourself God. Oh, they finally get it. You're saying you're Christ. You're God. Well, we don't buy that. Well, you asked, didn't you? <laughs> I told you. You don't like it. Is that going to happen again here in the end time? Is Christ going to show his hand and who he is and where he is and what he's doing? And they won't accept him? He answered them, Is it not written your law? I said, Even you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. In other words, he's not saying you are already God, but you have that potential, you're children of God through creation, and you have opportunity to be spiritual sons of God. He didn't explain all that, but uh, he quoted that from the Psalms. Say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, you blaspheme? Because, I said, I am the Son of God. I'm telling you, God sent me here. Now, Christ didn't always answer plainly. He spoke in parables so they wouldn't understand. But they asked for a plain, straightforward answer, and boy, are they getting it. I came from God. I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works. If you can't accept who I am, at least accept the works. Well, they'd had some confusion above here in saying, well, how do these miracles happen then? We're confused. Well, he said, this should remove the confusion. If you're not going to believe it when I tell you I'm God, then believe what I'm doing. They didn't believe that either. But the Father is in me, and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped. They wanted to kill him. Try it again. He escaped. And he went beyond Jordan and uh, so on. So the point is, the people around him did not know who he was. They didn't know the true God. They did not know the true Christ. And they said, show us who you are. And then he told them very plainly, and then pointed to his works to prove it, and they didn't accept that either. We have a world today who does not know the true Christ, and even the ones who use the name of Christ do not obey the things that he said and don't do as he did, and they are not true Christians. They are not Christians at all. They are worshiping they know not what. And the whole world lies in sin and follows their father, the devil. I think you and I all understand that. And when the beast power set up, sets itself up, or Satan sets it up, uh, and people take the mark of the beast, the whole world is going to take it. Satan deceives the whole world. So we are living in a world that does not know God today. They don't recognize the true Christ for who he is. They don't see his hand working anywhere. They may think they see it in their first Baptist or Methodist or... Mormon church or wherever, but he's not there. He, you cannot put him where he not, is not. He goes where he chooses, okay? So the world does not know who God is. Let's ask another question. Are they going to learn who he is? We'll spend some time on that here.
But before we go into that, let's consider something which I find very interesting. I don't know whether it's uh, important or not, but at least let's look at it. December 23rd of this year is the ninth month and 24th day of the book of Haggai. Now, we know the book of Haggai has to do with God beginning to regather his people to be worked with through the two witnesses who are typified by Zerubbabel and Joshua there and who are clearly identified as that in Revelation 11, the two sons of oil, being mentioned in Zechariah 4.14, the only two places in the Bible they're mentioned. So God is going to bring forth two leaders, and he's going to gather his people to them for the purpose of rebuilding the temple. And it is going to be far greater than that which preceded it in, with Herbert Armstrong. And there will be old men old enough to have seen the former temple and will see the latter temple in its glory to compare. So it's clearly talking about this end-time eras of the church, Herbert Armstrong being the former temple and the last one then being the latter temple. Now the timing of this, this year, to me, is very interesting. Uh, last year, the ninth month and 24th day fell about January 4th, early part of January anyway. And I looked it up this morning just out of curiosity. Next year, uh, the 9th and 24th falls about the 12th of December, give or take a day depending on what time the sun sets on the heavenly calendar, but about the 12th of December. And about the 30th of December in 2018, and in 2019, about the 20th of December. So it varies. It can hit early December, depending on uh, uh, when the new moon is after the Passover and the ninth month starts. It can be early in December. It can be even early in January or anywhere in between, depending on how the heavenly calendar falls. So last year, it was in January. The next three years after this year, it will be at odd times in the month of December. Now, interestingly... December 23rd, this year, is the ninth month and 24th day. And God says, from this day and upward will I bless you in the year in which he's talking about, okay? We have not determined at this point which year that will be. But it seems to be a day that he will begin to bless. Well, the Feast of Dedication is uh, the, the 25th day of the ninth month was when it was started. Now, this year, according to the heavenly calendar at least, that falls on December 24th. The Jews are keeping a day late this year. They postponed. So the 25th is the beginning of their Feast of Dedication, which happens to coincide with Christmas. But according to the heavenly calendar, it's a day before on the 24th. I find it interesting that this year, December 23rd, is the ninth month, 24th day. December 24th is day one of the Feast of Dedication and goes on for eight days. Now, another interesting item there is that the Feast of Dedication starts on the weekly Sabbath and ends on the weekly Sabbath. Now, I've often considered that when God begins to do some miracles and so on with his church, 
what better day to do them than the Sabbath day? That's when people are gathered together. When he began to really truly bless the early New Testament church, he did it when they were all gathered together at that time on Pentecost because it had a special meaning. But his hand was shown on a holy Sabbath. And I have always thought that that might indeed be true when he begins to bless the end-time church and begin the rudimentary beginnings of the gathering. It doesn't fall that way again for many years. Certainly not before 2019. And when will it again be the day before dedication? Because it goes through about a 30-day cycle. It can happen any time, and it can happen any day. This year, it happens the day after the 9th and 24th, and it happens on a Sabbath, the Feast of Dedication. Now, is that meaningful? Is it telling us something? Uh, I think there is that possibility, and I think that we should consider it, because that's an incredible way that that lines up. Now, if that's the case, I think I mentioned last week that Herbert Armstrong began the uh, college in 1947, and that signified uh, a, an increase in the work, an increase in what could be done, because there would be people trained to go out and help cause an increase. Uh, if 2017 is the time of the gathering in the springtime, and it may be, as we shall see, uh, then that, again, is a time of expansion, of preparing for uh, doing a greater work, more people coming, just as a college symbolized the exact same thing. And 2017 is 70 years after 1947, when in the former temple a, an expansion began. So it appears that the pattern is there, and it might continue in 2017, maybe springtime, could be the beginning of the regathering, as we will see uh, again a little later on in the sermon today. So bear in mind, we have uh, a very interesting time frame here this year. 23rd, 24th, and on the Sabbath. Coming right together. Is it possible that God will begin to bless and the very next day, would we begin to celebrate and sing songs and praises to God? Will something happen on the 23rd, December, uh, that would cause us to enter the Sabbath joyfully? And then would God maybe begin to do some healings and things uh, that would give us reason to celebrate and sing hymns and, and uh, give thanks and joy to God? I think it's highly possible, considering the things that are going on in the world, and how we're just on the very cusp of civil war and rebellion and revolution in this country, and rulers uh, killing rulers, as we saw last week in Jeremiah. Now, with that in mind, is Christ going to show plainly who he is here in the end time? Let's go over to Acts 3. Herbert Armstrong used this scripture uh, fairly often in talking about the time of uh, Christ returning and the renewal and restitution of all things. But let's pick it up here 
in verse 19. Uh, I think this is Peter speaking here. Uh, yeah. See, they had just had Pentecost. They had just had the coming of God's Spirit with thunder and lightning and flames of fire and a very uh, incredible display. And 5,000 people were added in, uh, down in chapter 4, verse 4. And the church began with about 70 and immediately went to thousands. So the message he was given, or giving, was, Repent you therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Eternal. Now, he said a mouthful there. <coughs> Peter, at this point, thought Christ was going to return very soon. He had not, Christ had not given the apostles any indication that it would be 2,000 years away. <coughs> so when they saw those miracles, they immediately thought, this is near. Just as we thought in 1960s, or the 1960s, that it was near, and would come in the lifetime of, while we were yet young, and that Herbert Armstrong was the leader that would bring it in. Well, turns out we hadn't been told the whole story. And it didn't happen, and that church was blown apart by Christ for Laodiceanism, and today we see dregs of it everywhere. And we are awaiting a time of the restitution of the church. It is a time for us <coughs> to be repenting, to be being more deeply converted, so that our sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come. There is a time of refreshing, and there are actually, there's a beginning of one, which is smaller, and then a greater one to follow. Christ is going to begin to restore his church in a very dramatic way, and then he is going to restore Israel uh, at the beginning of the millennium in an even more dramatic way. So there is a beginning of restitution that continues and becomes even greater as it goes on as the millennium starts. But we happen to be living in a time of the beginning of that restitution. Is it possible it could start December 23rd and 24th of this year? I can't think of a better time that I can think of. Now, maybe God's thought of a better time, but that's the best time I can think of is the next 924. And a lot of us are getting old enough and sick enough that we certainly can't think of a better time than this year. So let's certainly consider that as a possibility. And we'll know in about 10 days or 13 days... Uh, whether that was true or not. <laughs> but it's something we might ought to pray toward and ask God to intervene and to have mercy on us. And we'll see that a little later on some more. So the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the eternal. So Christ has to be involved and has to be there when this restitution starts, right? Right? Does that mean he's had to come and the first resurrection has occurred? No. It's a smaller restitution, but believe me, he'll be there and he'll be involved. And we'll see that in just a moment. Anyway, going on down, he says, And he shall send Emmanuel the Christ, which before was preached to you, 
Peter's preaching this to these Jews and others, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. So he says Christ went back to his Father in heaven, and he's going to be there until he begins to restore things again. Which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. I ask you, was Christ there when Herbert Armstrong was studying the Sabbath? Was he there when he began to call Herbert Armstrong to teach him the truths? Of course he was. He was certainly there in spirit, opening the man's mind, showing him what needed to be done, showing him what his commission needed to be, and inspiring and helping him to get the job done and opening doors before him as they were needed to be opened. And those were opened at certain dates, and Herbert Armstrong used to refer back to those constantly. It was when this happened and when that happened and the next move forward, you know, the broadcast, the college, the going into Europe and so on. And I equated those last week that they came up 70 years later in exactly what he's been doing with this little group. Each one of those events that happened in the earlier church are now happening right here. And our history shows that. The pattern is exactly the same. That would, If that were the case, we should see something in 2017 similar to the expansion that the college brought, if that pattern holds. Now, I don't mean to, to sound like I'm boastful or I'm anything, because I'm not. I'm nothing. I can do nothing. But God works where God works. <laughs> He works through the week in the base, for that matter. And he has started to work here, and I believe he's going to finish it if we do our part. And that always is a contingency, as we will see here in a little bit. But he wasn't bashful about saying, this is the work of God. And I don't know that we should be bashful either in saying, this is the work of God. The Christ is here, just like he was there. And if we don't feel that Christ is here, then we ought to be somewhere else. We need to go find him. Because he's going to be there when he starts to restore things. Which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Enoch, Noah, right on down. He's talked about this time of restitution that Peter is addressing through the prophets. Now, we have often said that the Bible was written for the end time church. Peter thought he was in it. He thought the things of Joel were about to happen and were happening, but they were in a small pattern or a small type. And it's to come in far greater fulfillment later on, here in the end time. So it is being made very clear here that uh, all the prophecies are about today. A lot of people say, well, that was all fulfilled way back then. No, all those prophets, from the very beginning and down till today, were talking about today. And Peter thought that that day had arrived, mistakenly. It hadn't. It has now. For Moses truly said to the fathers, A prophet shall the eternal your God raise up, like you of your brethren, like to me. Him shall you hear in all things whatsoever he shall say to you. Now that was speaking of Christ. And he had just been there and just left. So Peter said, that's the one we're talking about. Uh, and it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. 
And all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Speaking of the end time. So all the prophets, all the prophecies were about today. I've been bringing that out for 20 years now, that it had to do first with the church, spiritual Israel, then physical Israel. And the restitution that we're about to see is going to start in a small way and get bigger as time goes on. <clears throat> you are the children of the prophets, verse 25, and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. And if it was true of those people, it's even truer today. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Emmanuel, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Now, verse 19 says, Repent, be deeply changed, so your sins can be blotted out when the time of refreshing comes. Here he says that Christ came to turn us from our sin. Now, let's follow this up and see when the time of refreshing begins and what it has to do with us. Let's go to Isaiah 44. We've been here before, and we'll probably go here again. Remember Isaiah, the last chapters of the 30s in Isaiah, talk about the work of Herbert Armstrong and how his sons would be made eunuchs in the world, but he would have peace in his time. And after he died, the church was emasculated and could do no work. It accomplished nothing and has just uh, gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and more diverse and separated. So uh, Isaiah 39 is the end of the former temple with Herbert Armstrong. Isaiah 40 says to comfort his people and to cry aloud in the wilderness and let them know that help is on its way basically. So we go through those chapters and we come down to uh, 44. And several times in this context, uh, chapter 44 and verse 8, have not I told you from that time and have declared it, you are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God, I know not any. Now does that remind you of what Christ said on the Feast of Dedication. Show us plainly who you are. They don't know him. You are my witnesses. He's speaking of the work that begins after Herbert Armstrong's is over. That they will be his final witnesses that he is God. And they will be led by two who proclaim that worldwide. But we all not just those two, we are all witnesses that God is God. He's speaking here to the group, to the end-time church, not just to two men. Is he going to show plainly who he is? Is that what this is leading up to here in verse 8 of chapter 44? Well, let's go down to, he talks here about people have their gods and how they worship them and how they have other gods, and I mentioned that already in context. We have a world who knows not who God is. They're going to have to be plainly shown who Christ is and who the Father is, because they don't know them, period. So he goes through that and the rest of, down to verse 21. Now, let's pick it up there. 
Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant, I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel, you shall not be forgotten of me. Now he says, I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions, and as a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So speaking to the end-time church here, he says, I will blot out your sins like a cloud. I have, and you probably have as well, been looking up in the skies and watching a, a cloud, and then part of it just sort of disappears, and another piece of it goes away. And if you watch for a few minutes, that whole cloud will just disappear. Even over a period of 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, once it begins to come apart and vaporize, it no longer is visible. Now, he says that's the way he's going to do with our sins. They will just melt away. They will be forgiven like a cloud being removed. Or like in the morning, you wake up in a cloud, uh, fog all over the ground. It's just a, it's just a cloud. It's a matter of perception. If it's on the ground, we call it fog. If it's in the air, we call it a cloud. Now, if you see a cloud around a mountain, and you're on the ground, you say, well, there's a cloud up there. But the guy up on the mountain says, I'm in a fog. <laughs> when you're in it, it's fog. When you're looking up at it, it's a cloud. But it's the same thing. So like the sun comes up and dissipates the fog on the ground so will our sins be dissipated. God will forgive them and wipe them out like a cloud. And it is a time of joy, a time of restitution. Verse 23, Sing, O you heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forests, and every tree therein. For the Eternal has redeemed you, Jacob, and glorified himself in Israel. Now, is he going to be there when this happens? Looks like it to me. It's a time to sing and rejoice. What is the Feast of Dedication? A time to sing and rejoice because God has cleansed and purified His temple, His church. Now, what keeps His church from being clean and pure? Sin. Now, you can ask for repentance for sin, but that doesn't remove sin. You can be sorry for your sin, but that doesn't remove your sin. Only... God conferring forgiveness through the blood of Christ can your sin be forgiven. So we can pray and pray, and it means nothing until God actually does it. And he says to his witnesses here, his end-time latter temple, that he will blot out our transgressions, they'll be removed, and we can sing and rejoice that our sins are forgiven. Now, he goes on down in the same context here at the end time. Says that his word is going to done, be done. Verse 26. Uh, God is going to begin to do miracles. In verse 26, he will confirm the word of his servant and perform the counsel of his messengers. So someone is going to preach these things and then God is going to do it and confirm it. But says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. Who knows where Jerusalem is? Not a hundred people on earth even know where Jerusalem is today. And to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. We know many scriptures that say Jerusalem would be desolate for many generations. 
the cities of Judah would decay and not be inhabited. Well, over in modern Israel, all those cities are inhabited, and so is that Jerusalem. It hasn't been desolate for many generations. So this is speaking of the true place. And it can only be spoken of by someone that God gives that message to who can proclaim it. It's the only way it's going to be known. That says to the deep, the ocean, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. God dried up the Red Sea and he dried up the River Jordan. This is the God we're talking about. That says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple, <coughs> your foundation shall be laid. <coughs> so in the end time, God is going to send somebody to proclaim this message. And then he's going to raise up someone who is a type of a Gentile king, and we'll see later he doesn't even know God at all. And he will be the one who gives the okay for Jerusalem to be built and for the temple to be built. Okay? Just like the original Cyrus did long ago. He may be part Israelite, even as uh, uh, Cyrus was the daughter of, uh, <laughs> daughter, the son of uh, Esther and King Ahasuerus. So, you go on down to chapter 45, <clears throat> and I'm, I'm headed some here with, where with this. He says that he'll loosen the loins of kings, going to scare a lot of rulers to half to death, and that the gates will be opened before him, just as the gates of Babylon were opened for Cyrus, and Babylon was defeated. He says, I'll go before you in verse 2, and make the crooked places straight, that which is hard to understand. I'll break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. So there are some things that are going to be revealed that have been hard to find. How long have people been looking for the Holy Grail? How long have they been looking for Solomon's temple? How long have they been looking for the Ark of the Covenant? How long have they been looking for a lot of things? Generation after generation, and they've not been able to find because God has made it hidden where it cannot be seen. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that you may know that I, the Eternal, which call you by your name, am the God of Israel. Now, is God going to begin to make something plain? Let's read on. For Jacob, my servant's sake... Now, this isn't for Cyrus's sake. This is for Jacob, spiritual Israel's sake. And Israel, my elect. Now, who is elect other than his church? The Jews, the physical Israelites, are not God's elect. Only his church are his elect. I quote you the whole New Testament on that. So here he's talking about this man who is a type of the ancient Cyrus, who is going to find the treasures of God for the purpose of his church, his elect. I have even called you by your name. I have surnamed you, though you have not known me. So whoever this man is that God shows this to for the benefit of his church is going to be someone who does not know God. Just as the Jews and the days of the Feast of Dedication, did not know God. And they said, show us plainly who you are. Now Christ says here, he's going to show this guy who he is. 
And he's the one that even gave him his name. Go back in the history of the band that I think is fulfilling this. And his ancestor was dropped into a, the lap of a French farmer. And no one knows what the surname was. So God attached a name to him. And that's an interesting story. I'm not going there today. Don't have time. It doesn't matter. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded you, though you have not known me. Says it again. Now, here's the purpose. Verse 6. That they may know, not just, not just as Cyrus, but that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, around the world, east to west, sun up to sundown, that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Now, is he going to make it plain who he is? Sounds like it to me. Everybody on earth, as a result of these treasures that are going to be shown, is going to find out who God is. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Eternal, do all these things. What's the context here? He is going to begin to shine light at a time when he is also creating evil. He is going to be turning Satan loose on this world with the beast and the false prophet to deceive it. And then he is going, while he destroys mankind through Satan, he is going to be showing light through his end-time witnesses, of which we can be included if we do our part. If we repent of our sins and are forgiven when the time of restitution occurs. The time of restitution is mentioned right here in Isaiah 44 when our sins are going to be forgiven. Now let's follow that up. Let's go to uh, Zechariah 1. Here he's talking about uh, the church and the 70 years that it went through from the time Herbert Armstrong was called until it began to be restored in 1996 with a new message uh, in Zechariah 1. I'm talking and I can't find it, uh, but I'll get there. <clears throat> well, let's go to 2. He says, well, he says he's going to yet comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem, chapter 1, verse 17. And then he talks about uh, some people who try to divide and destroy that purpose by giving the land to uh, a receiver who will sell it and take the money and give them a deed to their prop to their lot and then they can sell it. Uh, those destroyers have to be removed. Anyway, uh, he will yet choose Jerusalem and Zion. And then he sees a measuring line in chapter 2 and says that Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle says in Isaiah 41, the same context of the latter temple, he'll raise up seven trees in the desert, seven churches. And then he talks about fleeing from the land of the north in verse 6, and how we're to deliver ourselves and go to Zion in verse 7, and you that dwell with the daughter of Babylon. And he says that that group, that people, will be the apple of his eye. And he says in verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. Did we just read that when our sins are removed? Sing and rejoice, for I come and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal. So, Peter said Christ would be there in the time of restitution. 
He says, I'll come and dwell with you and be in the midst of you when I begin to do these miracles and when I begin to restore. And he says in verse 13, Be silent of all flesh before the eternal, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. He's ready to go to work and show the earth plainly who he is. And part of that, and the beginning of that, may be the finding of his treasures. And then the removal of sin, and what happens when sin is removed? Blessing returns. Let's go to uh, Zechariah 3 and see that. Here he's talking about one of the witnesses, Joshua. Uh, but let's go on down. He says, He'll bring forth his servant the branch. That's the Zerubbabel in the end of verse 8. For behold, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Christ is the chief cornerstone of the church. He is going to come and set himself there to dwell with the church and with the end-time leaders and the gathering that he makes. I will engrave the graving thereof. I'll write on that, Christ says. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. So he's going to forgive us and begin to restore us in one day. Just above here, it says in verse... Uh, where is it? Oh, the, the, the men will be men of signs and wonders in verse uh, 8. So he's going to begin to do signs and wonders or miracles on the day that he forgives our sins. And we're clean and pure before him. In that day, says the eternal of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Haggai says he'll bring peace in that day and prosperity. So he's talking about a time when he begins to intervene and restore, and to do that he must forgive sin and then begin to, re to restore. And that's what Peter said. Repent and be converted, so when the time of refreshing starts, you might be included and be with Christ who's going to be there. We've just read when he's going to start restoring, and then he will be there. Okay? Uh, I'll turn quickly to Jeremiah 50 and show you again the context of when this is going to happen, because Jeremiah 50 and 51 are talking about Babylon being destroyed and about how God's people will begin to gather and say, how do I get to Zion? Uh, I'm in Isaiah, that won't work. Uh, I'm quoting it, but I'm not there yet. Anyway, uh, they'll say, here comes the army out of the north, verse 3, and they'll start saying, How do we get to Zion? Verse 5. My people have been lost sheep, but I'm going to begin to deliver them, begin to recover them, to gather them together. What was he talking about in John 10 on the Feast of Dedication? Beginning to gather his sheep together into the proper fold and show them plainly who he is and where he's working. That was his message on the Feast of Dedication to the questions that were asked, and he showed plainly who he was. And he is going to use his end-time ladder temple to show who he is. He will work through them. It won't be them doing it. He will work through them. He will do the signs and wonders. He will do the forgiving. He will do the leading to his treasures. It isn't man. It's God doing the work. He rises up out of his holy habitation to do his work and show who he is. He's got to show the whole world 
through his end-time church and the two witnesses who he is. That's the whole purpose of the whole thing, is to show who Christ is. Now, I was headed to verse 20. But the context is the northern army coming and God's people beginning to flee before it to Zion, to gather. In those days, verse 20, and in that time, says the Eternal, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought for, and there shall be none. His church will have been forgiven. We read about it in Isaiah 54, I mean Isaiah 44, and again in Zechariah 3. <coughs> and they, they'll look for the sins of Judah, and they shall not be found, for I will pardon them whom I reserve. <coughs> pardon, forgiveness, same thing. The context is when our nation is being taken over by the northern army which is not very far ahead of us. Not very far at all. Now, let's see this tied in again, and we'll... Uh, Isaiah 52. I've got two more places I want to go, so hang with me here. We're not quite done yet. Isaiah 52. <clears throat> People ask me, well, when are the two witnesses going to get together? When, when are we going to see them together? And then every once in a while someone urges me, well, you need to talk to so-and-so or talk to somebody and oh, we, we need to see things change. We need things to move forward. And I've, somebody asked me that or told me that not too long ago. And I've told that individual I don't know how many times. It's right here in Isaiah 52. tells you when they're going to get together, what the circumstances will be. But they keep forgetting this. It isn't something man can do. Men can't go together and, and have a meeting and, and, and then show themselves up as that. It just doesn't work that way. This is God's work. It's something Christ does, not something men can get together and form a council and decide and, and do. It's something He does. Now, here, the, cha the context in Isaiah 52 is, Wake up, church. Put on your holy garments. Well, what is, what's it in Zechariah 3? It shows the Joshua there giving, been given clean garments. What's a clean garment? It's one not spotted with sin. He says he'll forgive the sin in one day of that people. Here he says, put on your holy garments, the clean clothes. In other words, it signifies forgiveness. You don't have clean clothes till so you're forgiven. No, no more will the uncircumcised and the unclean come to you. God is going to have just, clean people. Forgiven people. So get up. Don't let Babylon walk all over you anymore in verse 2. You've sold yourselves out, but you're going to be redeemed without money. That's through the sacrifice of Christ, verse 3. <clears throat> but you've been in the captivity, and we are in the captivity of Babylon to this day. Those that rule over them, make them to howl, verse 5. Is that the way our nation and our church is today? The nation is howling over the leadership it has, and the church is howling over the leadership it has. So it all fits, the church and nation. Therefore, verse 6, my people shall know my name. Is he going to show plainly who he is? Does a piece of dedication have anything to do with end-time prophecy? 
Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. (laughs) No question about it. It's going to be very, very plain. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him, one, that brings good tidings, that delivers this message, that publishes peace, that says there's going to be peace. Did we just read about the vine and the fig tree? Uh, Did Haggai say that in this place will I bring peace in chapter 2, verse 9? That brings good tidings of good. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people. Make straight in the desert a highway. That publishes or talks about salvation. That says to Zion, your God reigns. There is a God who reigns over all. And he is about to be revealed to the peoples of the world, and he's about to be revealed to the church who don't know who he is either. Now, verse 8, Not he, but thy watchmen, more than one. There's two that he is appointed overall as the watchmen. Shall lift up the voice. They're going to talk. With the voice together shall they sing. So it's going to be a time of joy and happiness when they begin to speak and sing. For they shall see eye to eye when, he tells us specifically when, the eternal shall bring back or bring again Zion. When he begins to restore and have a time of restitution of the church. That comes in Haggai, where the two witnesses have the gathering that Christers brought to them to build the temple. They will not see eye to eye, they will not get together and sing together, until he turns it around. Now, how's he going to turn it around? We've already read that. By forgiving us our sins, and beginning to bless us, as Haggai says. Then he says, he'll make bare, verse 10, his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, not just the church, but when these two get together and begin to preach, it's going to show who God is to all the nations. Everyone. It will be a worldwide work. Make it plain to us who you are. Feast of dedication. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. That doesn't mean they're going to be saved. They're going to see His people being saved. His elect. And then they will have their chance of the millennium or great white throne judgment and be saved then. So it's a, a time that begins with His latter temple and goes on through until the plan of salvation is finished. So the time of restitution begins. Peter thought it began at Pentecost with the church in that day. And in one sense it did. But the latter fulfillment will be far greater than that was. Then he says, Depart you, depart you, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean thing, go out of the midst of her, go, go to Zion, be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. So he's going to uncover his vessels, to this man Cyrus for the sake of the church and the church will bear those vessels 
and we had better be clean, holy, and righteous in order to qualify to carry them. Uzzah was not. He was qualified to carry it, but he wasn't qualified to take care of it. That's God's job. All right, then, in chapter 53, it describes Christ in the Passover. And in 54, it says, Lengthen the cords of your tent. People are coming. You're going to have people you couldn't even believe are coming. They'll break forth on your right and on your left in verse 3. Fear not, you shall not be ashamed. Your maker is your husband, verse 5. The Lord of hosts is his name. Your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. He's going to make it clear who he is to his church. Uh, you've been called as a woman forsaken, but now you're going to be like a wife. For a moment I forsook you, but with great mercy will I gather you, verse 7. I hid my face from you, but I'm going to turn and be kind to you. And this is like the rainbow to me. It's going to happen. And then he says in the last verse of the chapter, the righteousness will be my righteousness, not their self-righteousness. Our own righteousness is filthy rags and worthless before God. So, the two witnesses are going to come together when these miracles start. The vessels of God are going to be discovered. We must be clean in order to qualify to bear them. Now, let's go to the book of Haggai, and let's see this all confirmed and encapsulated. Now, we already know that there will be people say, it isn't time to build the temple, but it is. So God will raise up these two, put them together. We already just saw when they will be put together. And the remnant will gather to them. And we saw in Jeremiah 50 that that will be just before this nation is destroyed as they run to Zion ahead of the northern army. And that he will forgive their sins at that time. So this is coming up very, very soon now because the armies are gathering. And revolution is about to occur. And these end time things are at the doorstep. Now he says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine in Haggai 2 verse 8. He tells us above that to work, he's with us. The silver is his and the gold is his. Well, didn't he say that those, the silver and the gold would be used to restore the temple and build Jerusalem? Yes, we saw that in Isaiah 45, 44. So here he reiterates it. So he's talking about the same time. He also says it is a time in verse 7, uh, or wait, uh, verse 6, that he's going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. So it's very. this is definitely talking about the end time, when the heavens are shaken, the day of the Lord. Then he says, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than the former. This will be a work that is greater by far than Herbert Armstrong had. And there he will give peace. There's the vine and the fig tree. Now, there's a condition here. And the condition is, verse 11, ask the priest concerning the law. If you touch the unclean, are you holy? No. If the whole, you know, you can't do that. He says, if you're unclean, you're unclean. And if you touch, if the holy touches the unclean, they become unclean. And then he says in verse 14, so is this people and so is this nation before me. So that all the hand, work of their hands is unclean. Now, we've already seen we have to be clean to bear the vessels of the eternal. And the church has been unclean. And he says he's going to forgive the sins of the latter temple in one day. 
And when he turns it around and begins to bless, the two witnesses will come together and the gathering will start soon thereafter because they have to come to those two. And those two have to be recognizable in order for that to happen. But the unclean can't be there. That's why we have to put on our holy garments, wake up, and be clean. And we can't cleanse ourselves. We have to have the blood of Christ to cleanse us. So he's going to be there and he's going to clean us. That's the time of restitution. And he says, I pray you consider from this day and upward, uh, before a stone was laid in the temple, you had a drought, a famine of the word. And nothing could be produced. There wasn't labor for anybody. We had blasting and mildew. What's the, what's the condition of the church today? Right there. Now he says, consider from this day and upward, from the 4th and 20th day of the ninth month, before the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Have you planted seed and it produced a crop that's in the barn? Nope. What about the vine, the fig, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? They haven't brought forth either. We've read these things. I've been preaching this for 20 years now. It hasn't happened. No crop, no produce, no fruit. Nothing's happened yet. From this day will I bless you, the 9th and 24th. Is he naming that day specifically? It appears to be that. So he has to forgive in one day, and he can't bless and from that day upward unless that's the day we're forgiven. <laughs> Got to be forgiven before you can be blessed. And then he says on the same day, tells Zerubbabel, it isn't long till I shake the heavens and the earth. <laughs> so this is the end time. This is a prophecy for today. Now, I want to go one more place, and that's Daniel. Daniel 9. On the Feast of Dedication, Christ was asked to show plainly who he was. We've shown several scriptures, and there are more, today, of when and how that is going to happen, that he is going to make plain to the church and the whole world who he is. 90% of the church will deny it. Only 10% remnant will come to build the temple. 90% of the church will deny, and 100% of the world will deny when he makes it plain who he is. Incredible. They'll follow the beast and the false prophet instead. They'll follow Satan, just as Adam and Eve did in the garden, and mankind has ever since. Just the way it's been. Going to be that way here at the end as well, except for a very, very few elect. Now, Daniel had been seeing some visions of some horrible times to come. And we are in the end of days, and this book was uh, sealed up until the end, and still some of it is enigmatical and hard to understand. But when Daniel saw all these things and these dreams, and we're now beginning to see them on the news before our very eyes today. He had a reaction. Chapter 9, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, uh, I, Daniel, understood from reading the number of the years where, uh, whereof the word of the Eternal came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So he knew it was a 70-year captivity from reading that. 
And he had been taken captive, and he was an old man now. And he realized that 70 years was up, and it was time for something to be done, for Judah to be released from Babylon and be able to go back and build a temple, which occurred shortly hereafter in ancient history. But in the end time, from the time God began <coughs> the end time work, until it came apart, and he began to give freedom, again, was 70 years. I went through that with you one time. Uh, from the time that uh, the word began to go forth there, uh, and the church was organized in 1933, became incorporated, was organized. Seventy years later, uh, we divided up this land and got organized to prepare a place for the remnant. That's a matter of record. It happened. So, a new beginning started 70 years after the original organization. And then there are other things that have happened in 70-year increments since then that fit in. But what did Daniel do when he knew that this was occurring? Now, I believe that 70 years since uh, Herbert Armstrong began Ambassador College, uh, that 2017 is 70 years. And a time of expansion appears to be just before us if that pattern holds. So we see the end of that 70 years upon us. Is it wrong for us to see that? Daniel saw it, didn't he? Is this correct? Is this the year? It very well may be. Now, I'm not going to go out here and say, this is it, and proclaim it. But I'm just presenting some stuff for us to consider. Now, when Daniel considered that, he did something. Now, we've read some scriptures today which indicate that these things, this time of refreshing, is going to come and Christ is going to begin to work and He's going to begin to reveal things. He's going to begin to forgive and to bless. But every time we read about it, He talks about sins being forgiven and about uncleanness being there and about how we need to put on the holy garments. So we have to address that as our part, right? Right? to turn to him. Let's read Daniel's prayer. Maybe we need to make this prayer our prayer. When he recognized the 70 years was done, and I think I recognize the 70 years is done, I set my face, verse 3, to the eternal God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Eternal, my God, and made my confession. <clears throat> Is it time to pray? <clears throat> Is it time to fast with sackcloth and ashes? Maybe so. It just occurred to me, I think we ought to fast next Sabbath. I think we ought to proclaim a fast for next Sabbath. That's the 17th. The next Sabbath is the 24th. The Feast of Dedication comes uh, the day after the 9th and 24th. Is this the time? I'm going to fast next Sabbath. I'm not going to command it, but I'm going to say, what did Daniel do when he saw what was coming? And when he saw the end of the 70 years? He tells us in Jeremiah, Jeremiah says, to seek him with all our heart, mind, body, and soul, and when we do that, we will find him. Is that what Daniel's doing here? 
Is he turning with fasting, sackcloth and ashes and prayer? Supplication, asking God, begging God, pleading God. That's what supplication is. I prayed to the Eternal my God and made my confession. So he confessed to God. What did David do in Psalm 51? He confessed his sin to God and said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God. Daniel knew who God was. Do we? We better. (laughs) We better. And he better know us. Because the rest of the world doesn't know God. Keeping the covenant... God is the one who keeps His covenant, and mercy to them that love Him, that is, those who obey Him, and to them that keep His commandments. Well, there He puts it. Love and obedience are the same thing. Same thing John said in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. God will give mercy to those that keep His commandments and love Him. We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing for your, from your precepts and from your judgments. Now, Daniel was as righteous a man as lived. Daniel lumped, or God lumped Daniel, Job, and Noah together and says these could only save themselves, as righteous as they were. But as righteous as Daniel was, he still had sin. He still recognized evil within himself. Neither have we hearkened to your servants, the prophets, which spoke in the name of our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and all the people of the land. Has the church hearkened when we've read Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, the minor prophets, to them? No. What about when we read Zechariah 1, who said, Don't stone the prophets who are sent to you in the context of uh, Zerubbabel and Joshua in the end-time church. Those who are sent to give you a message. Don't throw rocks at them. Well, they're trying to get rid of me right now. So there you have it. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but unto us confusion of faces as at this day. To the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to all Israel that are far and near that are far off. Is our country in confusion and frustration and not knowing what to do politically and in every other way? Is the church in confusion and not knowing what's going on? Yes, they are. To all the places you've driven them because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against you. This prayer is for us. It's written for today. Daniel was one of the prophets that wrote to us that we read about, that Christ talked about, and John talked about. O Lord, to us belongs confusion of face, to our kings, to our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you from head to foot. Isaiah said, from the top of the head to the sole of the foot, we're sick. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgivenesses, though we have rebelled against Him. We're pleading for mercy here. We're pleading for forgiveness. Because we have no way to justify ourselves, brethren. We're all sinners. We all sin every day. We need help. That's what he's asking for here. He saw all this horror coming, so he began to fast and pray. Neither have we obeyed the voice of the Eternal, our God, to walk in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. Have we been trying? Yes, we have. Have we accomplished it perfectly? No way at all. And any sin will kill you. Any sin is a spot on your garment. We need to be forgiven. 
Verse 11, Yea, all Israel have transgressed your law, even by departing, that they might not obey your voice. And if you don't obey him, you don't know him, he said. Therefore the curse is poured upon us. Has the nation been cursed? It, it is being and is about to be cursed violently. The church has already been cursed violently, and the nation is not far behind. It is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges that judged us by bringing evil upon us a great evil. Well, he had sent them into captivity. And we've been in the captivity of Babylon since the day we were born. And we are only beginning to be sprung. God gave us the first beginning of springing. From that, in 2003, when this land was divided up, and we began to organize to be a part of what God is going to do. And I hope that we succeed in being part of that. But the church has had great evil brought upon it, been scattered and spewed out. When you're part of vomit, I'd say evil has been done against you. For under the whole heaven has not been done as has been done upon Jerusalem. Is there any church that's been scattered any worse than worldwide? Has the Mormon church been spewed like we have? Is the Methodists, the Baptists, or the Catholics? No. It's just us. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this evil has come upon us, <coughs> yet made we not our prayer before the eternal our God, that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Has the church? No. They turned to some physical leader who stood up and said, if you'll just follow me, you'll go to a place of safety and be in the kingdom of God, because I'm the good guy. We're the Philadelphians, and the rest of them are Laodiceans. But follow me, and everything will be okay. Did they say, turn from our iniquities and understand God's truth? No. Therefore, has the Eternal watched upon the evil and brought it upon us? For the Lord our God is righteous in all His works, which He does, for we obeyed not His voice. So the trouble we find ourselves in is commensurate to the trouble that Jeremiah was in. And now, O Lord our God, you have brought your people forth out of the land of Mitzrayim with a mighty hand, and have gotten you renown, as at this day we have sinned, we have done wickedly. He says, we need saving just like you saved Israel out of captivity in Mitzrayim. He said he's going to make the captivity in Mitzrayim and the deliverance look like nothing by comparison. I forget where that verse is. I think it's in Isaiah. It'll make us forget Egypt and the Red Sea. This end-time deliverance is going to be so great. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, didn't he say in the end of Isaiah 54, our righteousness won't get it, but it's got to be his righteousness. All your righteousness, I beseech you, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, the church, your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem or the church and your people are become a reproach to all that are about us, held in disrespect, disregard, those fools that follow our Armstrong. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications and cause your face to shine upon the sanctuary that is desolate for the eternal sake. 
His church is his sanctuary, and it's desolate. And he said he's going to bring it to Zion and turn his face upon it and shine upon it once again. He says there later in Isaiah that we're like a woman trying to bring forth a child, trying to give birth, and all she can do is pass wind. She strains and farts, to use a blunt term. That's all we're able to do. That's all she's able to do. Of myself, of ourselves, we can do nothing. Pass gas. That's all we're good for. It has to be God that brings forth the birth. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and behold our desolations and the city which is called by your name, his church, the church of God. For we do not present our supplications before you for our righteousness. We don't have any. All our righteousnesses are as minstrel cloths. But for your great mercies. That's our only hope, is his great mercy. O Eternal, hear. O Eternal, forgive. And one day, as a cloud that passes away. O Eternal, hearken and do. Defer not for your own sake. O my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. End of his prayer. And God answered. Gave him a vision of how things would change. Now what about us? It's time to fast. It's time to pray. It's time to supplicate. Because we see ourselves in danger of destruction. And the nation is about to be destroyed as well. So supplicate that God deliver us, that he forgive our sins and turn his face back to us and do his work through us. He's given us the opportunity. Now we need to do our part, and he will do it.